We are in the final week of our series, Salvation Spaces, that we've been looking at over the past eight weeks. And it's our goal through this series to kind of look at at the saving power of the gospel and all of these different avenues of our lives. I've made the metaphor before, the illustration before, of this kind of looking at the gospel like a diamond. That as we turn it, as we look at all the different facets and faces, we see that it's all the same gemstone, all the gospel. But there are different angles and avenues to how it works in our lives. That God, in His great grace, would use this gospel, this good news of Jesus, to to know that He would need to make a way to save us when we could never save ourselves. We've seen how the attributes of God play into this and how we have new relationship because of all of these different angles. That God, being a just and righteous judge, that a price needed to be paid for our sin. And so Jesus would become that first word that we looked at, our propitiation. The paying of the cost of our sinfulness required because of God's holiness. And because that price was paid, because Jesus took that debt upon himself, uh, we are now justified. We've looked at this idea of being acquitted of the charges against us, that our record of sin has been expunged. And what I love about justification is not just in being saved in that, but all the different avenues of relationship that it opens between us and God. That no longer are we God's enemies because we have been reconciled to Him. No longer are we dead in our sins, but we have been regenerated into new life. No longer are we impure, but we are sanctified by His Spirit now living within us. Last week we saw that no longer are we slaves because now we are His adopted children. But there's one last word that I want to talk about today as we wrap up that kind of ties all of these together. And that's the word redemption. Redemption is a concept that we've touched on kind of briefly the last couple of weeks as we've talked about the the debt of slavery. For the Roman Empire, those to whom Paul is writing in this letter of Romans, for them, slavery was not about the color of their skin as much for them as it was about a debt that needed to be paid. Many who were in slavery at this time had no way to pay off their debts that they had accrued, and so they would need to work them off and be in this indentured servitude. In order to pay off their debt, they either had to work it off or wait for somebody to pay it off for you. But for many, this debt was so insurmountable, they knew that they would never be able to work it off. And so when they became slaves, they knew for many of them, it was for life unless, unless someone would come and pay it for you, to buy you back out of debt. That is redemption. And through all of these things that we've looked at so far, all of the ways that the gospel works in our lives, they all kind of come to to see that this is what God has been doing. That when we were enslaved to sin and death, Jesus paid our debt so that we could be free and that he could bring us back to him. As we look at our space, each week as we've talked about these words, we've looked at a certain space tied to this. Uh, Our our space this morning uh, is about a garden. I've mentioned before that as much as I love plants, I've never had much luck with gardening. Uh, I kind of realized the hard way after a couple of seasons of trying the whole gardening thing that all of my time and money and effort basically kind of boiled down to what I could purchase in an 86-cent can of crushed tomatoes. Like, it just was not worth the investment for me. Now, being in Florida, you might as well forget it. We don't have soil, we have sand. So build some sandcastles and forget your garden. But uh, I think as much as I might be a bad gardener, God does some of his best work in that space, in a garden. And so for our final space this morning, this place of redemption, we go to a garden. In fact, we all want to look specifically at three gardens that we see throughout Scripture. 
And the first is this, is a garden of loss. Of course, we know that the Bible opens in a garden. We see the Garden of Eden where God creates this perfect paradise full of every good and perfect gift that He desired to give us. We also know about this garden, that that is the place where our sin and disobedience and rebellion began. You probably know the story. God created Adam and Eve and He placed them in this perfect place. But not just a place with a perfect environment, but a place in which there was perfect relationship. I mean, picture living there as Adam and Eve having the, the, the perfect marriage, that you're always on the same page. You never argue about anything. They never had a fight because Adam left his clothes, you know, in a pile next to the hamper instead of putting them in the hamper. Uh, probably more because he didn't wear clothes, but, you know, they didn't fight about that. Uh, they never fought about Eve not changing the toilet paper roll when it was empty. You know, Adam never had to have the conversation asking Eve, where would you like to go out to eat? For her to say, I don't care. Only for him to propose places and her say, I don't want any of those. You know, these are all purely hypothetical. I know none of you have ever had these conversations in your marriages. But it wasn't just a perfect relationship with each other, but a perfect relationship with God. That God in this garden gave them purposeful work and he walked with them in the cool of the morning and they experienced the completeness of his presence and his provision. We see a little bit of this in Genesis chapter 2 verse 9. Said the Lord made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Going to verse 16, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. I love that it says that these trees were pleasing to the eye and good for food, that it wasn't just that God gave them sustenance, that he made it pleasing for them. This was a place of pleasure and his perfect provision. Aside from one thing that he told us not to do, and like the toddlers that we can be, the, when the minute he says, don't touch something, what do we do? We go for it. We know how that story went. It reminded me several years ago the story of a man named George Bean in Palmdale, California. He stopped at a local Burger, burger King and ordered a, a burger as a snack, and uh, at the drive through window, his total came to $4.33, except the cashier accidentally punched in the numbers twice, charging him not $4.33, but $4,334.33. Uh, he signed the receipt of his debit card without really even checking it, and the charge went through, literally emptying his bank account for several days until they could figure out how to get this reversed. The newspapers covering the story build the incident as the most expensive snack in history. And I have no doubt that that was a whopper of a bill. Get it? But I do think the actual most expensive snack in history happened here in the Garden of Eden, this Garden of Loss. Chapter 3, verse 6 says, When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. You see, Adam and Eve were so enamored with the idea of being like God that they missed that the true pleasure is being with God. And from that moment, all of that perfection, the perfect creation, the perfect unity, the perfect relationship with God, all of that shattered. And as we turn to Romans 8 this morning, we see Paul talking about that shattering in verse 18. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. 
the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Paul describes this, this shattering that we live in. He says things like present sufferings and frustration and bondage to decay and groaning and pain. And if you stop and think about it, it can seem like God was being really punitive, really punishing in his response to Adam and Eve in this moment. Like one bite of fruit and he kicks them out of the garden and he describes a life for them of pain and hard labor and and eventually death. Paul even says in verse 20 that creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In other words, God was the one who subjected his creation to this curse, to this frustration because of what sin had done. And you think that that sounds intense for God to do that, but this was not an act of punishment as much as it was an act of protection. Because the tree that they ate from was not the only tree in that garden. Verse 22 of Genesis chapter 3 says, And the Lord said, He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. The Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. You see, God knew that if Adam and Eve continued to have access to this tree that granted them life, they would live forever. But they would live forever in the brokenness their sin had caused. They'd live forever in the broken relationship, forever separated from God. And so because of their sin, death and decay and loss would enter into the world. But we also see in Romans 8, while Paul talks about the shattering that we live in, he also speaks with hope that this isn't where God would leave us, that we await our freedom and glory as his children, that we await eagerly our adoption and our redemption. And the reason that we can anticipate and look forward with such hope is that this isn't the only time in Scripture we see this tree of life. You see, there's not just a garden at the beginning of the Bible. There's also one at the end. But rather than a garden of loss, that one is a garden of life. In Revelation 22, we are shown creation restored as God has always intended it to be, as he created it to be. And what John is revealing here is that the story in large part ends where it begins, once again, in this garden of perfect relationship. Revelation 22 verse 1 says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. What I love about this description is that while it's called a city, so many descriptions of it that we see are also used of Eden, and crystal clear rivers and trees and fruit, being with God once more. But this this is no garden of pristine beauty unavailable to us because of sin. This is a garden free from that shattering, free from the effects of the curse, the one that brought about sin, that led by our sin that led to death. 
I mean, Paul even says very clearly, no, or John even says very clearly, no longer will there be any curse. No longer will we be separated from the presence of God. He is now enthroned in our midst. And once again, we see this tree of life. And no longer is it guarded by angels wielding flaming swords as it was when Adam and Eve were forced to leave the garden. Now it will freely yield its fruit to bring healing to everything that cripples and destroys and kills. And I love that he says it brings healing of the, the healing of the nations. But this garden isn't just a special place for Adam and Eve and the, the first created man and woman to enjoy. That this garden has flourished into a city full of all of those who have come to God and accepted his offer of healing and life. This is the future which Paul envisions when he writes these words in Romans 8. Verse 38, he says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For those who have been justified and reconciled and regenerated and sanctified and now live as adopted children of a good Father who freely gives life, and healing, and restored relationship, and renewed purpose, we get to experience this garden of life. And yet, in comparing these two gardens, I have to ask, as incredible as this future sounds, I think it can be easy to wonder, I mean, how, how did we go from this garden of life to, to, of loss to this garden of to life? I mean, how do we end up there? I mean, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve eat a piece of fruit and are banished forever from the eternal life in the presence of God. And yet, at the end of the Bible, we have this incredible picture of life and wholeness and the presence of God living with Him forever and ever, even though we have sinned in far greater ways. In other words, I think we need to ask the question, how can we possibly have hope for redemption? To be brought back into God's presence, to be restored. When the weight of our sin and debt should have also led to banishment. And I think all of that is answered in the third garden that we see this morning, the garden of surrender. When Jesus had finished his last Passover meal with his disciples on the night that he would be betrayed and marked for death, John tells us when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. And it was here in this garden called Gethsemane that Jesus asked his disciples to pray with him as he came to terms with what his father was asking of him. As he prayed for strength and for resolve for his disciples and, and those who would come after them, we see that he suffered. Luke tells us in his gospel that Jesus was so agonized in this moment that he was sweating blood. But despite knowing what he was about to endure, despite knowing that he was about to be whipped and beaten, and executed in the most torturous way the world had ever known. Despite knowing in that moment that he would take upon himself the weight of the sins of humanity, Jesus prayed, not my will, Father, but yours be done. And I think it's interesting to compare Jesus' prayer in that moment to what Paul speaks of again in Romans 8. Verse 26, he says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. I think as Paul speaks of these, these moments in this, as we live in this shattering, 
He speaks of those moments that maybe you've had them where it just seems like everything is at a, you're at a total loss. And when life struggles get too heavy to bear, when the pain seems insurmountable, when the future seems to offer very little hope. You know, think of the moments of what it must feel like to receive the devastation of a terminal cancer diagnosis or losing a loved one suddenly, or feeling just like the floor dropped out from under your world and it's turned upside down and devoid of any hope. And I love the promise that comes from Romans 8. As Paul says, in those moments, it's in those moments when we feel the effects of this curse on our world, the sufferings and the frustration and the bondage to decay and the groaning and pain, these things that he's been talking about, I love the promise that in those moments, we're not alone. That the Spirit helps us and intercedes on our behalf when we simply don't have the words to say. I love the comfort that comes with knowing that even when I have no idea what to say, God still hears my cries for help. But I also contrast that to Jesus. Because in this moment, Jesus didn't need to wonder what to pray. He wasn't at a loss for words. Because despite not wanting to go to the cross, asking his Father if there's any other way, he knew what he needed to do. As he told his father, I will do what you have called me to. And so he was arrested, brought to a garden called Golgotha. John 19, 41 says, the place where Jesus was crucified, there was, again, a garden. And it was there as he was crucified here, as he was made the propitiation against God's wrath against sin. It was here that he redeemed us. And he paid the price to buy us out of our slavery and debt to sin. His death, the payment of what we owed, brought us back into relationship with God. And when we choose to accept that payment on our behalf, we are redeemed. I love the way one of my friends, Mark Christian, said it. He said, unlike Adam, who took a live tree and used it to bring death, Jesus used a dead tree to bring life. Because of what Jesus has done for us, we have life in that new garden. We are declared justified, reconciled, regenerated, sanctified, adopted, redeemed. Because of the many works that Jesus accomplished, we get to receive the gift of grace, the curse of Eden being reversed, and we get to enjoy the garden of life with him again. As I wrap up this morning, I, I realize I made a clerical error. They don't teach math in Bible college. I told you we're going to look at three gardens, but I think it's important to bring a fourth into play. Is a garden of a tomb, but that tomb is empty. The reason that we have all of this change of status is not just because of Jesus' death, but because of his life. That we have life because Jesus lives. And this salvation that we've been looking at these past eight weeks is available to us because in that garden, the tomb was vacated, and the God man who died our death walked out to bring us life. And if I can tell you one thing in response to the, this series, all of the eight weeks that we've looked at, all of what the gospel does for us, if I could boil it down to one thing to tell you, I would say, don't miss this life. Don't be content to dwell in death. Don't be content to stay in slavery. I hope that what you've seen as we've walked through each of these salvation spaces is that Jesus has already done the work. And he simply calls us to respond, to repent, to follow after him. That's not just identifying with him in the waters of baptism to accept him as Savior, as Lord, though it does mean that. 
but it also means living in the hope of the gospel in each and every space of our lives. That when the world tells us that we cannot overcome our past, Jesus says you're redeemed. When the world tells us that we are worthless, Jesus says you're adopted. When the world tells us that we uh, will never live pure lives, that we will always be screw-ups, he says your spirit inside of you sanctifies you. When the world tells us that you deserve to be dead because of what you've done, Jesus says, I've regenerated you. When the world says there's no way that you can ever be right with God because of the weight of your sin, Jesus says, you're reconciled. When we feel in our own souls the weight of our guilt, Jesus says, you have been justified, you have been declared innocent because I have died the debt and paid the debt that you owed. To encourage us in this response to live this life, I want to close the series and the sermon with these final words from Romans 8 this morning. Paul says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship? persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written for your sake we face death all day long we are considered sheep we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered no in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for i am convinced neither death nor life neither angels nor demons neither the present nor the future nor any powers neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. It's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Imagine you stand on the edge of a cliff. You take notice of the great expanse before you, the great mountains which tower toward the sky, so high that no vegetation can grow, they are simply capped by stone and dirt. They stretch into the valley where organisms are born and change. You see the trees and grass, the flowers and thorns. They provide for the creatures who live there. The ox and the bird, the wolf and the worm. Yet nothing compares to the grand finale, humanity the great intricacies of a person who knows and wills and loves. Every molecule working together like an instrument in a symphony, each birth amplifying the melody and declaring the glory of the composer. All of this creation was not born of its own will, but by a grand maker, brought forth into existence by a creator who wanted it there. Spoiled only by its own broken love, humanity loved the made instead of the maker, the created instead of the creator, 
humanity and creation itself became subject to frustration and in bondage to decay. The great garden which once teemed with life became wild. What was once a haven of peace became a dangerous jungle. But Creator would enter creation. He who sustains life would now interrupt it. The same word which composed this song would now become part of it, moving the dynamic to an ever-growing crescendo. He would trim back the vines, rip away the weeds, burn the chaff. Here, he would restore that garden. He would make his sacred space. He would invite us home. This is restoration. Father, as we've looked at what Jesus has done for us the last couple of months, I'm invigorated by the good news of the gospel. This good news that shapes us and changes us, not by our own effort, but by what Jesus has done. God, my prayer is that as we move on from this series, that we would not move on from what recognizing what Jesus has done, but by your great grace, by your great grace, what you did for us in giving us your Son. God, I pray that we would continue to pursue this life, that we'd no longer chain ourselves back into slavery, no longer dwell in death, but pursue Jesus with all that we are. God, my prayer is that we would look to him, seeing what he has done, and knowing that in him we have hope. We pray this in his name.